Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. And uh, I think you guys are in for a real treat. Um, I'm interviewing a guy who wrote a book about burnout and stress. And uh, in his summary, he talks about uh, the responsibility uh, lies squarely on the shoulders of the organization. I was like, ooh, I got to get this guy on my podcast and interview. So Michael Leiter, uh, Yes. Thank you so much for being here. The book, let's pull it up here. I want to make sure everybody gets this. The Truth About Burnout, How Organizations Cause Personal Stress and What to Do About It. Thanks so much for being here. And what made you write this book? Okay. Well, I've been doing research on the idea of burnout with uh, my colleague in California, Christina Vaslak, who sort of got very early into this game, developed a measure a lot of people are using. And so we, we wrote that book. We wrote that book a few years ago, and we've written a, a newer one that's called uh, The Burnout Challenge, which is uh, that the two of us sort of updated some of the stuff. I'm I'll talk about those books today. So there's two of them, and they're both available, you know, through Amazon or wherever it is you buy books these days. And um, basically, the idea was this: is that really, it's a little different from saying it squarely on the shoulders of the organization. Really, how we're looking at it now is that burnout is a relationship breakdown that people and organizations. People enter organizations; they got an agenda, something they want to accomplish, some place they want to go with their career as well as making some money right now. And then, but organizations, they have their agenda and they want to get some work out of these people. They want to get things done. And so the question is, well, how's that relationship working out? Or are, 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 are they looking after each other as well as they need to? Because when you got, you got to do something as a partnership, you got to look after both of you. And so that's what we're saying is that the gap, the thing that drives people towards burnout is that space in between uh, that relationship getting into trouble. So miscommunication more so than anything else. Well, it could be that what's miscommunication is part of it. Sometimes, no, sometimes it's just that it's, you know, what, how the workplace is set up is just really different from what people want to accomplish. Like sometimes a workplace is set up that you're talking with people all day and you got some people who are really introverts. They don't want to talk to people all day, (laughs) but that's the way it is. It's not a communication you know, a gap. It's that they want something different. And so you go sort it out. And so then the workplace has to say, well, do we have any place for people who really rather not be talking to people all day? Or are we just a talking kind of place? So, you know, you've got to move on. Uh, and we can't change all that. But if they can adapt, they said, well, actually, we got somebody who got to, you know, needs to be in the back room crunching some numbers. So, yeah, we got room for you. We can find another place for you. But you got to be flexible. You got to say, how can we work it out so we're both getting what we want out of this? So we have more than we've ever had, and we have more options and choices and freedom than ever before. We have technology, AI, but there is a growing trend of burnout and stress. So what is happening? Are there any stats or figures that you could quote to us that are significant in the workplace to look out for? Because this is a trend that seems to be getting stronger. Yeah, I think it, it is. I think that basically both things are changing. Both the nature of organizations are changing, the place of the work, your workplaces, but also people are changing. I think people, uh, you know, when I talk with, you know, who's coming out of colleges, who's coming out of high schools these days, they got a different view of the world than we did when, uh, in, in ancient days when I was coming out of college and all that. I think people now, they're much more value oriented. They have much deeper agendas in terms of what they want to be doing with their life, about how they think society should be running, about who they are and what kind of respect they're deserving of. They got a much more thorough kind of 
they thought that out a lot more. They've got uh, alarms that go off much sooner in the process that things are starting to go off the rails. And that if employers want to hold on to these people, if they say, that's where the talent is, that's where we're going to get our edge is through these people. Well, they got to be on top of that. They got to be able to say, oh, well, what are you up to? Is there any way we can work so that you think you're actually making the world a better place while you're working with us? Uh, And if you say, well, no, I don't care about whether they feel that way, then you might lose some of the talent. You know, how hungry are you are for talent? Because this is, it's still um, pretty much, it's not really an employer's market right now. There's still, the unemployment rate's still pretty low. Uh, People aren't that desperate for jobs quite yet. You know, most people aren't. And so if you want to get to good talent and hold on to them, you've got to meet people where they are. And uh, and if people want to develop their record, their track record, so that they get recognized as a top talent, well, they've got to deliver as well. So that's where it's a, it's a relationship kind of thing. Is it being worked out so both of them are getting their agendas taken care of? Most of my audience, uh, I guess you could say that it, the average audience member is an entrepreneur, potentially one to five members uh, within mm-hmm. their team. They're growing the organization. And I think Whenever I first started, I've been an entrepreneur since 2008, uh, a full-time entrepreneur since 2016, and I was a different person back then. I was a slave driver. I was somebody who just said, get it done. I don't care what it takes, simply because my back was up against a wall. As time went by and we grew and I had a little bit more of an understanding of who I was, where the company was going, maybe a little bit more uh, air in the tank with, with finances. I became a better leader. And therefore, I realized I'm only as good as the team around me, their mental state, their personal development state, uh, and how well they are I- involved as a, uh, as a leader themselves and, and in, in ma- managing other people. And so I changed. Is this something that most organizations kind of go through also where they kind of go through this burnout stage? I don't really, I don't care about your feelings but just keep getting it done. And they go through people realizing that the problem was the leader being a slave driver. And then eventually they morph into a better manager, a better uh, coworker, a better person to be, a, to be involved with. Anything like that? I think that, that kind of process, that, that's a dynamic that's out there because basically, and what people are doing when they're succeeding to make it through that, like the, what you described, with yourself that um, you're learning how to listen. You're learning how to pay attention yes, to exactly. what is it that the people are all about. Rather, because you start off, this is all about me and my vision and everybody's just got to, you know, and you go, wait a minute, actually, they're, they're not that bought into it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, That's and, what I realized. Uh, it took time. Right. Yes. It takes time. And, and then you figure that out and then you go, okay, well, oh, we have to share. We have to, there is glory enough for all. Uh, hopefully, and money enough for all too. But there's certainly glory enough for all, and you can figure out make it really rewarding for people, right? And like we talk about, you know, like there's these six areas of work life that sort of really come into the agenda when people are being pushed towards burnout. And one of them is the workload that can be overwhelming for people, and they haven't figured out how to manage it. Uh, and and uh, workplace isn't helping them manage it. So, but but there's also a sense of control. People want to feel like they've got some initiative that they're making. Some they're contributing. They're not just being a pawn in the boss's hands, but they're actually they're part of this too. That's a really rewarding feeling for people. That sense of 
you know, initiative and whatever, a bit of autonomy, uh, reward that you got to pay people well enough, but also give them jobs that they really like doing rather than drudgery all day long, a little bit of drudgery, but you got to have some time doing stuff you like. The community is vital, getting along the people, how they talk to each other, the respect, the uh, regard they show for each other, just in the little things they say, just the you know, say hi to eye contact, that kind of thing. Uh, feeling fairness, but also that thing about values, whether if there's a value conflict, if people think this place is going down the wrong path, then they're going to start disengaging from it. Yeah, yep. they are going to pull back. I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, the, the fact of you need to learn how to listen. I was not listening. I wasn't listening to the market. I wasn't listening to my mm. intuition. I wasn't listening to my team. And yeah. once I changed all that, I started to ask individuals, like, what are you looking to get out of this? Where do you see yourself five years from now? Yeah. It wasn't all about me. It was about them. And I think yeah. a leader's job, and, and uh, maybe you've seen this in other organizations, but a leader's job is to paint a vision so grand that other people within the organization can see their vision fit inside of that. But yeah, they got to see that vision, but they also have to manage day to day so that it keeps being real for them. They can't just have the vision as a pie on the sky. It's also got to be when you show up at work in the day, you actually do have some experiences of, you know, really getting along with people well and creating something together. And you have experiences of that was really, I really enjoyed doing that. That was really meaningful what I did. And because when you, and, and you ask people about, you know, did you do something really meaningful recently at work? If they describe what they did, they're telling you about doing something hard. They're talking about doing something really difficult. Yeah, they're not saying, oh, here was something that was so easy. No, they're going to tell you, they, people like doing things that are hard to do. And, and they like that experience. They like being that sense of, you know, I'm capable. I'm really good at this. You know, you <laughs> give people that experience. Yes. Uh, um, now, now we're on the same track here because yeah. I, in my upcoming book, I talk about it. The book is called Resurrect the Hero Within. And mm. in, within every old story, old fable, there's basically a hero, a dragon and gold or a princess, basically, mm -hmm. where okay. this hero has to slay the dragon. And and I look at individuals who want it easy. Right. They just want money to come to them. They just want the easy path. Well, there's no dragon to slay, which means there's no dopamine yeah. hitting in their brain. And then there's no reward. So what you're saying yeah. is that yeah. sometimes yeah. people want a challenge, but they need a targeted focus goal that excites them so when they do slay that dragon they can turn around to their friends and family and co-workers to say we got that goal accomplished that. that's amazing yes. and then the financial reward comes as a result yeah because uh, i think you know or jack and the beanstalk he made basically what looked like a dodgy investment at first his mom was not on side with buying those big trading the house for the beans but then he got something going and he had to actually climb up there and take on the giant and then, uh, you know, get the goods and all of that. So it's, uh, uh, but those stories, they, they capture something about how people, because if it's, again, if it's too easy, then well, anybody can do it and you're, you don't have any kind of a niche anymore. You want to, you want to carve out a niche, that idea of deep working, doing things that really require you to, you know, just focus focus in a deep kind of way that that's that's what people build their careers on is what they accomplish in that because that's something that's distinct that takes their particular talents and puts it into a product that can be shared yeah there's a book called a man's search for meaning 
And basically the people who outlast any condition are the ones who have purpose and hope and, uh, mm -hmm. and something to shoot for. And that's why I believe, and you're in Canada, so you probably have a different perspective, or maybe you see something that I don't, but people who are uh, asking for uh, automated money from the government, I think it's mm -hmm. robbing them of purpose and drive. And I think it leads to depression because once you lose purpose and drive, you know, what's next usually leads to pills and prescription medicines. So that's the way I look at it. But have you ever read any books by Jim Rohn? Are you a Jim Rohn fan? I'm not a Jim. No, I don't know Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn is oh, one of the greatest speakers of all time. So okay. Jim Rohn has, uh, he taught Tony Robbins uh, a couple okay. things. And so Tony mm -hmm. Robbins basically shares his wisdom. You're familiar with Tony Robbins, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. So yes. Jim Rohn says your level of income is directly related to your level of self-development. And so mm -hmm. where we differ, I think, when you talk about the organization's responsibility, I believe it's a 50-50 approach, right? The organization has a responsibility to give a clear message, a clear goal, and show them their core values so they attract the right people. But when it comes to the employee or entrepreneur, that's the word I like to use, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, within the organization, it does require them to constantly progress and add value to the marketplace, right? Because as yeah. they progress, they could potentially make more money, have more purpose, also have more responsibility. And I've seen that in individuals within my organization. So that's the way I look at it. What are your thoughts on mm -hmm. that? Oh, well, no, I think, I think, well, that basically means that you're managing in a way that really enables people. Like you're basically not thinking, okay, as the, uh, you know, the CEO here, it's for me to tell everybody what to do and 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 to control that that uh, then you're sort of flipping it around and saying actually your job as a CEO is to enable people doing what needs to be done and that actually you're the facilitator more than the commander rather than the the the, uh, the drill sergeant but that means you've got to understand how this place works you've got to understand well what do people need to uh you know, to, to get their job done. And I found, you know, when I was working in university, sort of uh, becoming uh, a dean of science, I was a dean of science at one point. Now, there's a whole lot of sciences I know nothing about. I know nothing about how a chemistry lab works or what geologists are actually doing out there traveling around those rocks. But I had to learn about, well, what do I, I don't need to learn how to do any of that, right? I, but I do need to know what do those guys really need? to, uh, you know, to run their labs and to do it safely and to teach new students. And to, and what do those geologists, like, what do they do? What, what do they need to really enable them to go out and find out how are those, you know, ecosystem structures, how they put together and, and getting a depth of knowledge on that. So that's the piece. It wasn't for me to tell anybody what to do because I didn't understand what the heck it is <laughs> that they were doing. Uh, it was for me, though, to get, okay, what are the kinds of, policies you need, what are the material resources that are needed there, what are the timelines that these people accomplish things in, like all these things work in a different timeline, uh, how you get results and what are what's a meaningful result. So those are the kinds of things as a leader, you've got to understand, but that goes back to, again, listening, paying attention to people and uh, figuring out how are they going to get them to really deliver on what the, the workplace really needs them to do. Some of the entrepreneurs I work with, uh, you know, they're my allies, they're my alliances, and uh, they're always touting how long an individual's been with them, right? Whether it's a personal mm -hmm. assistant or somebody within the team. And I remember early on, I was so 
in awe of people who uh, had a team that was, you know, five, 10 years, 15 years, the Mm -hmm. same person. So whenever I started to build my organization, that was a metric that showed I was either doing something right or wrong. If I only had Mm -hmm. people for a week or a couple months, it might be saying something about my marketing or about myself or maybe the structure, the the standard operating procedures, the clarity within the organization. Uh, But having somebody that's been with me for five, six years is a testament to um, the the organization and, and where we're going and her, and those in those individuals' belief in me. So you're noticing people job jumping left and right. Yeah. What's yeah. the number one metric or what's the number one reason for that? And I'm assuming it's not always financial. Oh no, it's not always financial, and in fact, a lot of times that sort of slows people down. I mean, I mean, it is financial if they're being underpaid in the first place, and, and people aren't recognizing that they deserve more. I mean, that is part of the equation. But a whole lot of it has to do with uh, really personal relationships. As they say, people uh, don't quit a job; they quit a boss. Uh, if they <laughs> quit a work group as well, uh, you know. So when those relate, because basically, what what I found with uh, some research that we did, we were asking people like, uh, how often in the past month has your supervisor, uh, you know, said something rude to you or excluded you from a conversation or you know, like you felt how often in the past month has your boss made you feel like you were not on the good end of things with that boss. And what we found is that people said once rather than zero, just one time rather than zero, that their scores were much more in the burnout direction than the people who said zero. It's like it only took one interaction in the past month where they said, that boss doesn't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not on the good side of this boss. <laughs> and they were basically, how do I get out of here? Because they uh they weren't they, they they didn't have confidence they could repair that. They didn't know what was going on with that, but they knew it was bad. And they knew I'm gonna I, I yeah so I think relationships are social encounters, you know, whether they're respectful, whether they're conveying, I don't like you, uh, people monitor that very closely and it makes, uh, it drives a lot of behavior. Man, for the people listening, that's a gold nugget right there. Quit, you know, focusing on only what you are, what you need and start to think of how you could acknowledge individuals for the work they're doing, because that's a need inside of them that you are maybe uh, negating as something that's significant to the organization. That's huge. So that's a great Mm -hmm. tip. Any other tip that you recommend for our listeners? Because that right there could change a a direction of the the worker or even the leader, right? Uh, Hey, if I spend 15 minutes a month, have a notification pop up on my phone to say, have I looked into this person's work ethic? And maybe you don't lie to them and say you're doing a great job when you're not, but to acknowledge that you see them trying and caring and you uh, make a note of it in front of them and the organization. You can give people very crisp, very you know, firm feedback on what, when they're not performing, when they're not quite there. You got you to gotta guide them in that way, but you got to at the same time convey that you still believe in them. You still think, you know, they 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 got a, got a future here with that. So I think that is uh you know it, it's how you put it together, which again goes back to that listening carefully and being able to uh, you know figure out where people are coming from, what their sensitivities are, and and to bring them along. Because uh, what you get when people are around for a longer period of time, you get a depth of knowledge. Now you know sometimes to a certain degree, you know some people 
are going to move on. And that's actually, that just shows that your workplace is a place that people can build. People can, you know, it's got a future. Uh, it's, it's a good, it's a good pathway to, to, to higher things. Uh, so that, you know, they don't have to keep everybody forever, but overall, you know, a good, good retention rate is, uh, is, 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 is a good metric to hold on to. And, and that depth of knowledge becomes more and more important or the more complicated your business is. Like, you know, some businesses, you can train people to do what you want them to do in, in a half an hour. But, you know, that, that, there's fewer of those as time goes on. Things are just getting more and more complicated. And, uh, and, 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 and having, having a, a longer track record with people is, is more and more a valuable thing to have in a big organization or a small organization. So I have a, a little bit of an experience with, uh, with, with corporations. So um, I worked at a corporation for a couple of years and I saw a difference between how a corporation works as compared to a small business. And my blood just starts to really pump whenever I'm in an entrepreneurial small business environment. The corporate environment just sucked the life out of me. So that really showed me the path that I wanted to go and uh, be create an organization that never felt corporate. All right. So that is in my blood. That's in my message, all my text messages, my emails, all my books. So was there a time in your life, if you can kind of give us a painting of, you know, the, your past, some of the experiences that really showed you what to do, what not to do that made you kind of fall in love with uh, what makes an organization tick and, and thrive? Oh yeah, I've worked a lot with um, well, seeing you know, large organizations. Uh, I've, I've I've worked with large and I've worked with small. And um, as, an you find a, a, as an employer, consultant, as an employer, oh, as an employee, as as a yeah, as and and as a consultant, but as an executive with a university for a while, and so I sort of looked at it from a number of different angles, and I think. Uh, it's something like in, in healthcare when they talk about burnout, they also also often talk about compassion fatigue. Like the like the nurses and doctors have run out of compassion to give, and I've I've never bought into that. I've always thought it was administrative nonsense fatigue that people were experiencing in these settings. That when you get a whole lot of procedural nonsense, uh, you know, travel forms that uh, take up a huge part of people's time when they come back from some kind of a journey, uh, these sort of online training modules that actually don't teach you anything, but they cook, you know, somebody in HR gets to check off a list somewhere, and you've, you've, you've wasted uh, 45 minutes, and you'll never get the time back. And uh, that kind of thing, it's that, or just having long meetings you know i just like meetings where everybody has to stand up because then they get over with sooner meetings a lot of times wasted at meetings a lot of you know and i know zoom meetings as well as uh in person meetings uh the kinds of things managers are not supposed to be wasting people's time but from the point of view of the employer employee often they're wasting their time because this isn't what i'm trying to accomplish and some manager or you know somebody in hr is clicking oh we got a list here of you know mandatory things that have to be done so we're taking up everybody's time to do them well that's wasting their time <laughs> that's that's getting something done for you but it ain't, it's 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 ruining it, it's not ruining their day but it's certainly wasting a big chunk of their day so i think that's the main thing that i find with larger corporate kinds of environments is they got more of that baggage that they inflict on people and that really does use up any goodwill that they have yeah there's an entrepreneur in my past that uh, gave me the book rich dad poor dad have you ever read that book 
I haven't read that book. Yeah, yeah. So should I read a, that book? Yeah, you should. I would say that it's okay. one of the, it's it, it's a defining moment in my life. Anyway, mm-hmm. he gave me that okay. book, and I'm so thankful simply because it showed me how you know the rich people think as compared to poor people think, and and so it really showed me that I was adopting a certain philosophy that was not going to benefit me long term, and it got me on the mm-hmm. right path. Anyway, his investment in me made all the difference, and so mm-hmm. I still think of that relationship. Now, the moment I started to see him change or the relationship break apart, it was like, it's only a matter of time for me to leave that organization. So you're talking about making sure that your organization knows as a leader, anybody out there as a leader to let the organization care. When an organization becomes so big, how can an organization still build that relation, keep that relationship strong? Is it is it simply financial rewards? Is it touching base? Is it company meetings or uh, company events as I'm like, hey, here at the end of every quarter, let's get together. As a company grows, how do you still have that personal touch mm-hmm. that uh, I notice goes away once an organization hits a certain level? I think it, it's um, the overall leadership model for things like that, I think, are that one having very deep and clearly articulated values. What is uh, what is this all about? What are our primary performance metrics? How do we know when we're going down the right path? And that needs to be clear throughout. And then it's uh, putting the authority to make things happen, pushing it down the line so that like the, the team leaders, like the first line managers, the team leaders should have a lot of latitude about how they're going to actually get that work done rather than having central policies that dictate that. You should monitor them very closely in terms of the performance metrics, make sure they're on the right track and are delivering. Uh, so that becomes very important. So you're not just letting them go, but you're they make the decisions, they stand by those decisions. If they're not making the right ones, well, you've got to then deal with that. You've got a, a performance problem that has to be dealt with. But you don't try to micromanage it from center. You really try to push it out there to uh, the people who are close to the actual work. And I think that keeps it alive. But you have to have very clear values. you got to know what it is we have to deliver here. Um, and, uh, you know, like when I'm doing surveys of people in hospitals, sometimes oh, they complain, well, the management just cares about money. And I'm going, to have a job where you don't have to worry about money at all is a nice thing. Uh, and, and, and I... Yeah, but money is part of the metric of running a hospital in the United States of America. You got to figure out how are we going to pay for all this stuff because it's a pricey business. It ain't just you know for, you know a nice being nice to people. It's expensive equipment, expensive people, expensive time, expensive facilities, and so yeah, money's part of it. So you got to figure out yeah you, that's not something to complain about. Man, that's their job is to get the money. <laughs> No Your doubt. job is to take care of the patients. So don't have them, you know, pretend like they're afraid. It's a whole other game. You got to appreciate they're running a different game. And they got to appreciate that, that, you know, the doctors and nurses are doing a different game uh, that doesn't map onto their world, but they got to enable each other. You've, I'm, I'm assuming you've researched many companies, the ones who do really well in this area, ones who do very poorly. Is there an organization or even just an example of something that really shocked you of, wow, they are doing something phenomenal here. Look at the the employee retention. Look at the morale that's within this culture. Uh, anything that um, might be valuable to the listeners? Well, I think um, I think, you know, a number of the tech companies like, um, you know, have certainly had 
elements of a culture that really does engage people very deeply and, and allows people to really develop you know, great stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm struck with, uh, you know, open AI, the extent to which all these people said, well, we're going to follow our leader because he's actually enabling us for doing the kind of work that needs to be done here. There you and, go. Uh, yeah, you know, so he was doing something that connects with his people. And it's also, they jumped ahead of Google and everybody else in terms of AI at a few years by, uh, well, I mean, it took a few billion dollars from Microsoft to make do it, but they, but they did deliver chat. GPT. Nobody else has anything, gave us anything like that. They just um, so there's something going on there. Is people were with them, and that that is um, something to attend to. Well, Sam, for everybody listening, Sam Waltman was the CEO of OpenAI. His board, I believe, is only six members because people six left members. or he let let them yeah. go, and the board turned on him. Right, and mm-hmm. so there was some type of uh, backhand or uh, back curtain deals, and and uh, he, he was ousted. But 700 employees said, though, if you're going to let Sam go, we're walking out too, right? 700 of 770. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know there were seven. How amazing. Now, what's with those 70 people, eh? (laughs) So you think you're going to run a company with 70? All right. Good luck with that. Oh, is that phenomenal? I didn't know. So what he was doing was working. There was a buy-in from the people. And wherever he went, they were going. Because yeah. I'm assuming, I mean, this is the, the the nature of the beast right now. We can work from anywhere in the world right now at any time. That is mm-hmm. gold for these tech companies. And that's how I built my yeah. companies. I want people from every, wherever they're at, they can work where, wherever they want. And um, I think that's crucial. So that's that's something that I, I focused on. But that's what happened with Sam. So wherever you go, Sam, yeah. we're with you. And that shows true <laughs> leadership. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's phenomenal. So, um, okay. And, uh, the burnout challenge, I just wanted to kind of yes. touch on this because you have multiple books okay. and you have a co-author, the burnout challenge. What, what will they get if they read either the first book or the second book, uh, the burnout challenge, what would happen? Well, basically it, it's the idea that, 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 you know, people, there's sort of an idea that, that when people are experiencing burnout, what they need to do is just get more resilient. They should, uh, you know, meditate and eat better and sleep better. And all Ice those baths. things are good things Ice to baths, do. Right? Uh, yeah, all that kind of thing. And we're going, no, actually, it's a management problem. So basically what's happening, burnout is a workplace problem. It's not a mental illness. It's a workplace problem. And that people are not being inspired by what they're doing. And people will work really hard at what it is they believe in. So there is this gap. And so it could be that they're working at just the wrong place and there's no place here at all that's really good for you and you got to find another place to go work. But it could be organizations, a lot of them are pretty complicated. There's a lot of different roles that need to be filled. And so if there's flexibility in terms of where you're going to work and when you're going to work and how you're going to work and which approach you're going to take, that the best thing that leadership can do is create some flexibility in the front line so that, uh, you know, team leaders can work out with people what's going to bring out their talents, what's going to make them feel fulfilled while delivering the best goods for us. And if that is really, I think, the primary management skill now for first-line leaders, and, and but it has to be not just learn how to do it, but they, but it has to be enabled by management. they got to let them actually do something rather than tie them up with from rigid policies. And so that's a lot of what we're talking. So we're giving sort of a guidance about how that goes about, 
how you go in and find out, well, is burnout really a problem for your workplace or people being overextended or medical or what, what, what's, what's the issue here? Ways of understanding that and then some pathways for doing something about it. So, so it's it, a good read. It, I'll, I'll, I'm going to check that out. Uh, and so it is in your messaging that, I mean, the way I look at life, you only get more of what you tolerate. And so if you are not inspired by your work, if you're not passionate about it and you feel like you are on the wrong path, it's up to you as the employee or the entrepreneur to pursue something that does set your soul on fire. Fire, Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Individuals can't, can't be the passive little, uh, you know, pawns at a workplace. They aren't just going to sit there and let them, okay, use me. That isn't right. really it. You've got to go away. You've, you've got an agenda. Know what your agenda is. Know what it is you're trying to accomplish here. And uh, have a dialogue with your workplace and say, okay, this is what I'm about. And I want to have more chances to show initiative and leadership here, some autonomy. I got to, you know, uh, how are we going to work that out so that, you know, the micromanaging boss has, can back off a bit and let them breathe. Uh, but you gotta, you know, the individual's gotta take a role in that, but the employer has to be responsive. You can't just say, no, we got a policy, go away. <laughs> no, you gotta open up, you gotta figure out, this is problem solving, this is what management is about. And it's not about diagnosing mental illness, it's about, it's about managing, it's about bringing out the best in people. I agree with Dr. Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian. You, you a mm -hmm. fan of his? Uh, uh, not somebody I track a lot now, but okay. gotcha. he has a great quote. It says, you have a moral obligation, moral obligation to pursue what you find meaningful. And once you agree with that, <laughs> your life, you have a moral yeah. obligation to pursue. And I think that is so significant. So personal responsibility and absolute accountability, accountability on your own self, that is crucial. And that's why I'm a, I buy into a lot of uh, information that he shares simply because you know, you are in charge of your life. You are the author of your own story. So um, is there a book out there uh, that has changed your life, maybe put you on this path or something outside of your own books that you recommend to our listeners? Oh. Well, it's been a while. It's the, uh, I don't know, the good to great is, a, I thought that was a, that, 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 Collins, that's a good I believe piece that's of work. Collins, yeah. That's Collins, yeah. That's a good piece of work. And because and, uh, and, and it, it shows how, you know, you manage things well, it makes a huge difference in how things are going to perform. And I, I think that is, uh, and it comes down to people. It comes down to uh, how you're going to bring out the best of people and make things happen. Beautiful. And so uh, this burnout challenge, uh, I, I was, you know, looking at, I looked at the, the, the cover of the book after I was researching your uh, current, mm -hmm. your other book, you said you wrote it a couple of years ago. And yeah. uh, I'm just fascinated with challenges. And uh, we have a million dollar book mm -hmm. challenge that within a certain amount of time, you should have a book done and using it properly. So is in your next, or this new book, The Burnout Challenge, do you set timeframes and like by within the next 30 days, do this, this, and this, and you have dates. I think mm. a date mm. or a goal without a date is only a dream. And and so <laughs> this challenge, okay. um, do you have any timeframes that will really um, alter an individual's life if they read this book? Uh, we don't have time frames like that. No, we, we do have some sequence. And here's the steps to follow, but we don't really have it in how many days it takes. Um, so uh, it's a different kind of uh, mapping that way. Gotcha. And so right now, uh, are you still a, a professor? Is that what you said? Uh, well, I'm a professor emeritus, and emeritus means they don't have to pay me. 
<laughs> but but uh, really, no. in terms of of work, I'm I'm, I'm more of a, a of a consultant and and in, in the entrepreneurial world. So I was a professor for many years, enough years, and so now uh, that's sort of aside. But I'm taking you know what I learned out of doing all that research, working with people, uh, developing ideas over the years, and working with uh, with organizations and and Canada and the states and Australia. I spent a few years in Australia, so we still do some work down there. So um, that's that's what I'm up to. What do you find meaningful? What is your moral obligation as of right now? I mean, or when did you even experience oh. that for the very first time? I know that it took me a while to figure out my path in life. So when mm. did you find it and what is it? Well, really, it's uh, showing that you can take a workplace that's having problems and move them into a better space. That's basically it. We've got like just um, this week, I got some, some, some results from uh, initiative we were doing in Australia with a group down there uh, with, with, with a package I put together on essentially doing family therapy with work groups. You got a work group that's not getting along. They're fighting with each other. They're being bogged down. Their, their leaders not helping them get out of the messes. And so we've got a whole format for like a five session kind of thing for saying we're dealing with that, saying, OK, how are we going to actually cooperate with each other uh, rather than get bogged down in all this nonsense? And, um, you know, so they, we just ran one of those sequences with the group down there. I was looking at the outcome from, you know, the impact of it. And it really did make an impact with these people in terms of just how they talk to each other day to day. And you can see in terms of the scores on our, our burnout measure, it's moving away from burnout and people being more engaged with their work because they like being with each other. Uh, and, and, and again, part of that was there were some leadership issues where some people in leadership were sort of pitting people against each other or showing they had favorites and not favorites. And that is um, that destroys teams. Uh, so you've got to, you know, so we got a method to get in there and do that. That's what I'm up to. Can you actually do something with the workplace and see there's been an impact on that? Last question I have for you. Uh, I've noticed that how I deal with certain people, uh, with on the team, you know, whether it's male or female or different age brackets or different personalities. Uh, I've, I've fall, I have fallen in love with mm -hmm. disc tests and, um, understanding how people think based off of who they are. And so mm -hmm. the more I'm able to understand who I am, the more I'm able to understand where they're coming from and, and, and what they really want. So are there any pieces of information you could provide to our listeners that, you know, as a leader, how you deal with a young woman who's 19, as compared to a woman who's 35, as compared to one who's 60, very much as with a man who's 20 years old compared to 30 and 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 their different stages in life it's not one size fits all and i think that's yeah. what makes the great leaders the the ones who uh we 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 talk about because it's not they just understand one way to teach it's how they teach depending on their audience so anything you could share um uh, amongst that uh that questionnaire well i think overall the workplaces Work groups are getting more and more diverse as time goes on in terms of people's background, culture, age, education, all these kinds of things are all being, you know, it's pretty complicated out there. And, and not everybody doesn't get everybody else's point of view because they're coming from a different place. We did a thing with a, uh, it was with a nursing program I was working with at a university. And they were trying to figure out, you know, how to get people more, you know, sort of culturally aware or of each other and everything. And what we focused on was to bring it pretty concrete and just say, 
okay, we got a big lecture class at the beginning, you know, with all the nursing students. So it was a hundred or something, you know, in, in the room. Uh, let's talk about, let's have an open discussion about what is polite civil behavior in a classroom. What are the kinds of things that irritate you when you're in a lecture class? You know, like what, what kind of food should people bring in? If you're going to drink, bring coffee in, you can't slurp. You know, you've got to figure out how to drink the thing quietly. Uh, it, you certainly can't bring in spicy food. What if, how do you deal with coming late or leaving early? Are you supposed to, to interrupt things and say, can I leave early? Or are you supposed to just get up and quietly go? What's our, what's our, what's our procedure here? What's our protocol for all kinds of things? If you want to watch videos on your screen during the lecture, uh, well, then sit in the back row so you're not distracting the other students with your silly videos. Because we're actually trying to learn something here, and so that kind of, they basically have these open discussions, and you find out that for some people, referring to the instructor by her first name was just something they wouldn't do; they would never do that. And other people, well, that's what they do all the time. And so, what does the instructor want? Does the instructor want the first name, or does the instructor want Professor So and So, or what? How are we supposed to do this? Um, and it goes into the fact that all your assumptions about what is proper behavior is based on a very limited, you know, experience, which is your life. And there's a whole other games going on all around you. And if you have a discussion like that, particularly with like a hundred young people in a classroom, you're going to learn a lot about how different people are understanding the very space that you're part of. So I think basically to come back to your first question is that you talk to people about it and you find out, well, what is important to them and how, what does those do those jokes you're telling, do they offend them or do they think they're funny? And how many people here think, what if one person found your joke really offensive and everybody else thought it was funny? Would you still tell that joke? Ooh, good question <laughs> to ask. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you make the, you make assumptions left and right that, hey, yeah. people know me by now. But sometimes you just never know if it touches the wrong chord. That's You don't. I don't. Yeah. And, and so that's what you find out in these conversations sometimes. You go, oops. More communication, more conversations, and uh, do not assume. I think that's where I'm, uh, where I'm, what I'm picking up from you. That's it, because you're listening. That's it. Man. And I've heard this great uh, stat. It says that when you interview people or when you go to a party, whatever, there's an 80-20 rule, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with this Pareto principle, 80-20 yeah. rule. Mm -hmm. But the same thing applies in a conversation. Get somebody mm -hmm. else to talk 80% of the time, and you interject 20% of the time. And if you notice how even the greatest podcast out there, the host, will speak 20% of the time, the guest will speak 80% of the time. It just makes so much sense. So sense. that yeah. is crucial. You do that within your team, too. That's beautiful. Yeah. Excellent. So the book, guys, is called The Truth About Burnout and his other book, The Burnout Challenge. Michael Leiter, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for being here. Great talking with you. Absolutely. Guys, remember, a million-dollar book will lead to a million-dollar life. Right on.